uh, walking through the book of Philippians, so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to dig into God's Word here together. The name of this series is Mission Together, and we began just last week looking at this unique church and the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with this deeply missional church. It's the most missional church that Paul knew, but we said last week doesn't mean that that church wasn't in need of a a tune-up. And the same thing is true for us as a church. We, we will always need, as long as we exist, we will always need tune-ups, both personally as a Christian as well as corporately as a church. So we need God by his spirit to get underneath the hood and do some work on us as a church. And I pray that that is, that is what happens. I pray we don't just do history here, but, but God, God works deeply in our hearts to create a people who are passionate about the spread of the gospel in this city and in the world. And so I pray that that's the effect of our time together. Um, Speaking of which, uh, I just wanted to take an opportunity to report something I haven't had a chance to report in these last few weeks. And that is if you were at our recent prayer gathering just a, a few weeks ago, um, we prayed around our schools. We, we had names of schools all over our city. We walked around to these different banners and we lifted up the teachers and principals and um, staff and the students as well and just asked God to work powerfully and to save uh, children for his glory. And, and so I've been in touch with a friend of mine who was a part of that evening. He's a teacher here in the city. And, uh, and he said, I'll only text you when people come to faith. And my phone has been lighting up since September the 5th. And there have been, in just this one school at Restoration Academy, there have been five children who have come to saving faith in Christ. We just give God praise for that. Such a wonderful, wonderful thing. So he hears us when we pray. He answers when we pray. And so even as we look at this passage of scripture that is so about the motivation for getting out there, sharing good news, spreading the news that has changed our lives, I pray that it has ripple effects in our church and in the city and wherever God sends us around the world, connected to our short-term trips as well, that there will be ripple effects. So Philippians 1, I'm going to read it in just a second. Maybe you're familiar with um, the story, The Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in the 1600s by John Bunyan, a bestseller next to the Bible alone, I think, in history is the, the number of copies that have been sold. The famous preacher George Whitfield said about the Pilgrim's Progress, quote, it smells of the prison. And that's because John Bunyan wrote it from Bedford Jail during his time there when he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Whitfield went on to say this, quote, ministers never write or preach so well as when under the cross because there the spirit of Christ and of glory rests upon them. And in that sense, I hope we read Philippians and and we can smell the prison because this is one of the four letters that was written from prison that Paul writes. And so when Paul writes the words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, those words, put that into the, into the real context, those words were written under the gleam of the executioner's sword. It puts a different complexion on that passage, on that life verse, when we understand that that kind of circumstance, that kind of situation, as you might expect, has a way of sharpening one's vision. 
right? You're in the heat of it. You're under oppression. You're under persecution. You're suffering for the faith. And that brings a kind of clear vision to the Christian life. And these words that we're going to read were written by a man who was hostile to Christ, a man who was then transformed by Christ, and then a man who spent the rest of his life telling people about Christ. Here's what he says, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that... Because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Here's the danger. In Birmingham, you can be born and live your whole life and die thinking it's possible to dabble with Jesus and reach heaven. That's a unique challenge of living in the buckle of the Bible belt. But the the truth is this. I hope everybody here hears this. The truth is this. No one steps halfway into the Christian faith. It's not possible. The way to life is dying to what you thought was life. Jesus set it up that way. He who would save his life must lose his life. The way to life is dying to what we thought was life. But then what happens when you step forward in faith toward that kind of death is you come up on the other side and there's this unbelievable clarity. What you see from the inside of the Christian faith is this. I didn't lose anything. (laughs) I gained everything. What looked like death from the outside when you stepped in it felt like life. It felt so much more like life than it felt like death. And this is that passage where Paul is beating that drum as hard as he can. This passage is welcome clarity in the fog of Christian nominalism. 
half-hearted Christianity. This passage is welcome clarity in the, in the haze of just try harder Christianity, you know, Christian moralism. This, this passage breaks through all of that. It clears the cobwebs of both nominalism and moralism. This passage, friends, can only be explained by an inner revolution triggered by the Spirit of God which leads us to life, which leads us toward a life of being all in for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And let, let me just say, oh, here's my prayer, and I was praying this again last night, I've been praying this all week. It, if that, what I just said, sounds different from the Christianity that you embraced, I pray this morning you step all the way in. I pray God's spirit does such a work in your heart of awakening you to the truth that you step all the way in. And if you're all the way in, I pray that we look at this text and we splash around in it. We enjoy the goodness of what it means to be captured by Christ, captured by his glory. This is where it's at. This passage is where it's at, right? What are the core convictions of someone whose heart has been changed by Jesus? is being changed by Jesus. And I think there are three truths, and we see them in this text, three truths that God's Spirit wants to drive down deep into our souls. The longer we live the Christian life, the Spirit of God is gonna drive these truths down deeper into our souls. And the first is this, nothing is better than knowing Jesus. I'd love just saying that. Nothing is better than knowing Jesus. Paul says, no matter what happens to me, the end goal is going to be the same. I'm calling it now. Christ is going to be honored either way. Whatever comes, and I don't know what's coming next, if I'm alive, I'm alive for Christ, to make much of Christ. And he's going to say this again in chapter 3. He's going to say, knowing Jesus is, is my highest ambition. It is his purpose in life. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to his image. That's what he wants more than anything. He relativizes every other concern. Everything else is a distant second. Paul says, knowing Jesus is the thing. It's, it's the one all-consuming aim of the Christian life, to know him. Even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet brings this, this ringing clarity. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Those are the things that people have been boasting about for centuries. It hasn't changed. He says, if you're going to boast, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. This, friends, is the treasure of the Christian life, knowing Christ. You, you read what the Apostle Paul writes. Get to know the man through his writing. You read what he writes about Jesus Christ who, he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. You read what Paul writes about Jesus Christ and you get the distinct impression that Paul had met the most compelling person in world history. Same thing happens when the Samaritan woman encounters Jesus in John chapter 4. She meets Jesus Moments later, she's running through town saying, everyone, everybody, you got to come meet this man. It's just this compelling encounter with Jesus Christ. When, when Paul talks about Jesus, people who haven't met Jesus 
want to meet Jesus, right? You just overhear, and it's like, I want to meet him. He sounds awesome. Look, Christian, is that what we sound like when we talk about Jesus? Does Jesus sound awesome? Does he sound worth it, worth knowing that no sacrifice is too great? You run after him, and there's life there. You know, if any of you... um. Watched, and we watched for years, Steve Irwin, the, the crocodile man. Right? And what was it that caused so many people to start dialing into the Discovery Channel and Animal Planet or wherever it was that he was doing his thing? What, what spread the word was just this guy was contagious in his joy over these creatures. You know, he got a newt. You know, you never thought much about it, but he's just like, look, she's so beautiful, you know, which is a terrible accent. But anyway... Just everything, he's like, you wouldn't believe it, you know, and he's talking about how many, you know, where it goes and how deep it swims and here's where its gills are and, here, you know, here the light, there's a light back here when it's deep enough. I mean, it's just pointing to all these things. It's his joy in the thing that makes you go, golly, that, that's pretty cool. It, it draws you in. Look, for Paul, his, his enthusiasm is contagious enthusiasm. For Paul, Christianity isn't a chore. It's not a checklist. If Paul was alive now and you put to him the question, you said, look, if you could just unplug and do whatever you want to do, if you could just unplug and enjoy life for the rest of this year, you've worked really hard, if you could just enjoy life for the rest of this year, what would you do with the rest of this year? And he'd look at you puzzled. He'd say, I do exactly what I'm doing right now. I love what I'm doing right now, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That's where it's at. I promise you I'm not making this up. It's that awesome. And Paul wants to work on Philippi to where they sound just like that. That's why he says, if I get to keep living here in verse 25, if I get to live, here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be working for your progress and what? Joy in the faith. I'm working on the church toward their progress and their joy in the faith. Why? Because this is in your notes. A joyful Christian is a great witness. A joyful Christian is a great witness. Put that the other way. A duty-driven, I did my chores today, Christian, is a terrible witness. (laughs) Who wants that? Right? I think about marriage. By way of example, I think about marriage. My, My parents... By God's grace, and they were very imperfect, right? But by God's grace, my parents were a billboard for marriage. My, my siblings and I, we had front row seats to watch mom and dad walk through life together. And we watched them do the marriage thing, and we looked at each other like, where do we sign up? It was a billboard for marriage. It was a compelling picture of what marriage can be. What if the Christian life looked to outsiders who were looking at our lives? What if it looked deeply satisfying? What if we had a joy that ran deeper than the circumstances of our lives? This is a question we put to you in the outline. Who writes about joy while in prison? Who does that? How is that possible? Who writes about joy while in prison? Answer, Paul did, right here. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, who, 
Who does that? But Peter speaks to believers. The apostle Peter as well. He's speaking to believers who have been scattered by persecution to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They've been scattered all over the world by persecution. And what does he write about in the very first chapter? He writes about their pain, but he writes about how you have joy, inexpressible, and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Who talks like that? James writes about trials in the same sentence as counting it all joy. Why? Because God is working in our trials. He's forging something in our trials. Who sings in jail after a flogging? And there he is at midnight, and you hear his voice ringing out from Acts chapter 16, and his name is Silas. And then somebody's rocking a duet part, a harmony part, and his name is Paul. And Paul and Silas are singing hymns. Backs just opened up and flayed by the flog, singing hymns in jail. Jesus spoke of this new covenant reality that was coming. And he said the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he's going to dwell inside of believers. And notice the word picture that Jesus used before Pentecost, before the Spirit was poured out on believers. Jesus says this, or it says this, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. What if we had that? (laughs) What if we had something irrepressible and the world could see it, glimpses of it in our lives. So what if we had a joy and a contentment this world doesn't know anything about? Jesus said, I have food you know not of. What if we had something that satisfies us and grounds us that this world doesn't know anything about? What if, what if we didn't give the world the impression that faith in Jesus Christ is the spiritual equivalent of sucking lemons? You know, just, you just, you got to do it. I mean, just go ahead and pop it in, you know, get it, get it over with. That, it, that's, that's not the picture of Christianity here in God's word. What if we weren't just joyful? Here's, here's the pivot. What if, what if we weren't just joyful, but we told people it's because of Jesus that we have this irrepressible, unshakable joy? Nothing is better than knowing Jesus. Number two. No privilege is greater than proclaiming Jesus. Look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me actually has advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So, So Paul had planted this church 10 years earlier and now, so he preached the gospel 10 years earlier and now there's a church there by God's grace and now Paul is writing to those believers in Philippi and he's writing from prison in Rome and what's he he saying that he's doing there in prison? He's saying, I preached the gospel before I ended up in jail and I'm preaching the gospel here. (laughs) Like God has me here, apparently the people group he wants me to reach are prison guards. He just looks around. He says, well, these are the guys who get to hear it. It's almost like there's this ironic way. Paul has this twisted way of looking at reality. He's like, they think I'm the captive. 
They're a captive audience. They have to come and be around me all day long. They're right where I want them. <laughs> I mean, who looks at life that way? It's crazy, right? But Paul was a one-message man. Paul was a one-message man, and the message that he brought was about a king and a kingdom. And you, you might be new here. Maybe you're just getting acquainted with the Bible, which is great. It's a lifetime of exploration, God's word is. But can I just give you the Cliff Notes version of the Bible? It's, it's this story that God made us in his image, but then something went terribly wrong in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter three, we rebelled against God. Our first parents rebelled against God. One theologian said that they bit the forbidden fruit and the juice ran down our chins. And so there was this, this representation and it affected the entire cosmos. Every person who would ever be born would be born into this world already broken, already with a heart that's ready to run away from God as soon as we know how. That's the story, we rebelled against God. When they sinned in the garden, shame and guilt came flooding into the world. Wasn't here before, it's here now, and it's here to stay. And it's been here from Genesis 3 all the way up to this present morning, and it will be here all the way up until the king returns again to end it forever. We rebelled against God, and ever since that rebellion, everything that we think is satisfying by nature, apart from God's grace, everything we think is satisfying isn't. Every place that we are looking for love will not satisfy us. And God knew we'd never turn from our sin. Because it was like a drug and it had us. And we were addicts and we were never going to turn back. And so God in his grace sent Jesus. We talked about this in Romans 8 some weeks back. That what the law couldn't do because it was weak because of me... God did in sending his own son, and so he sent, in grace, he sent his son to take our sin away, to drown it. As author Tim Keller put it, we were so bad that Jesus had to die for us. We were so loved, he was glad to die for us. That's the story of the good news of the Bible. God, a holy God, is reaching for sinful people through the cross of his son, Jesus, to reconcile us to him, to make it right forever. Jesus paid our debts on the cross and rose again from the dead. So the cross, friends, look at it the right way. The cross is God's love reaching out to the world. I love this statement by Sinclair Ferguson author and theologian, he says, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. He is saying to us, I love you this much. I love that. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. Christ died for us. He has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross we could never do for ourselves. The reason we, now he's talking about Christians, the reason we lack assurance of his grace is because we fail to focus on that spot where he has revealed it. Oh, that is so rich. Those words, God has done something on the cross we could never do for ourselves. Can I just say, and I don't know who's in this room, I don't know who I'm looking at in this room, but can I just say to you with full confidence you have not run so far from God that he can't reach you by his grace in one fell swoop today. 
all of it can be washed away. All the sin, all the guilt, all the shame. Believe the good news of the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from false saviors to the real one, the one hope of the world. Paul was preaching that everywhere he went. That's why we said he's a one message man. He said, we preach Christ. It's what we do. If you don't want to hear that, don't bring us. We preach Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ and him crucified. Notice what he says in verse 23. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's talking about the church. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that, so what's the outcome of joy in the church and faith in Jesus Christ? Here's the the so that. Because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ may abound. You, You might just be these contagious Christians. Those are Paul's priorities. Right there. That's his bucket list. What does he want? Paul, what do you want? He says, here's what I want. I want want you, Philippi, to be joyful in Christ, verse 25. I want you to be boasting in Christ, verse 26. I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, verse 27. I want you contending, verse 27, together in the spread of the gospel of Christ. Let work done on our joy and our faith in Jesus will have ripple effects on our mission in the world. A Brook Hills that is strong in faith and joyful in Christ will leave a mark on this city and wherever God sends us in the world. Notice, notice this. Notice how ready Paul is to rejoice as long as the gospel is being proclaimed. Look at verse 15. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So these are the ones who are rubbing it in Paul's eye. See, we're not in jail. Uh, You are. Wrong move, right? Paul says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul's rejoicing comes so easy. He says, was the gospel preached? Awesome, I rejoice. Yeah, but it was preached from wrong motives. and These guys were trying to rub it in your eye. You, I thought you said Christ was preached. I'm ready to rejoice. Christ proclaimed, the gospel proclaimed. Here's a question for us to think about. Is the gospel big enough to unify the church? Is the gospel big enough to unify the church? One thing, I said this last year in the We Are series, one sign of mission drift in the church can be seen by the number of things that we think we have time to fight about that aren't the gospel. Secondary issues and even beyond that. I read this insightful remark, I came across it this week, it was from a missionary, he was born in Budapest, a convert from Judaism to Christianity, and he wrote in the 1800s, this is what he said, The union of Christians is marred not by giving too much importance to little things, but by not keeping sufficiently prominent the great things. Did it ever strike you that the early Christians also differed on minor points, for which nowadays it would be thought quite necessary to make a new sect? But they were so absorbed in thinking 
that they knew God as their father, that Jesus was their savior, that they were possessors of the Holy Ghost, that nothing could separate them. Thus it is that when we go to a meeting where Christians meet, we feel as if we lost our asthma, we can breathe. How we need a recovery of this spirit of, I like what they're doing over there. I like what they're doing over there in that side of the city or in that other denomination where the gospel is being preached. I like what they're doing. Somebody might say, really? You really like what they're doing? Did you know that they're, you know, they're, they're still stuck back in the 80s and their approach to gathered worship or they, they do this or that or you know, their, their worship team color coordinates you know, or whatever it might be. Do you know that they're, you know, their pulpit that they preach from is a Chili's high table? So you're still going to rejoice in that? They're doing multi-site or whatever it might be, our little tribes, and we collect around the thing. We say, this is the thing, right? right? And that's the wrong thing, and this is the right thing. Well, here's the point. When I said I like what they're doing, what I mean is I like that they're preaching the gospel. <laughs> that, that's the great unifier of the church of Jesus Christ is I like that they're preaching the gospel. If they're preaching the gospel, Paul says, I rejoice. You, know, you need to tell me another thing. You said they preached the gospel, and so I'm in. I'm a fan. They're friends. They preach the message that saves. You know, when it comes to the, um, the fractured and divided picture of the body of Christ that we're presenting to our culture, I think it's high time for the church of Jesus Christ here to, to realize the obvious, that we are not living in a time where the ball is bouncing in our direction culturally. We don't have the luxury to fight about secondary issues. I'm not sure we ever should have, but we certainly don't have the luxury of doing it now. The time seems to be coming rather rapidly where if you want to be at the sort of Christian cool kids table, you're going to have to deny and abandon fundamental tenets of the gospel, fundamental tenets of the faith. So let's make sure we draw the line in the right place. Let's draw a line in the sand, but let's draw it where it counts the most. Let's define the real inside and outside, not just some fake one, some tertiary or secondary one. Look, nothing in this world is better than knowing Jesus. No privilege is greater than proclaiming Jesus. And third, no prospect is more thrilling than seeing Jesus. No prospect is more thrilling than seeing Jesus. I love the clarity of this text. God's spirit wants to drive this truth down deep that no prospect is more thrilling than seeing Jesus. It's an eternal perspective that drives the Christian to live the way that we do. I was a very literal child. I don't know how many of you were or how many of you have a very literal child. I remember watching a commercial about, as a kid, watching a commercial about a powerful antacid um, and the commercial began this way, and I'm going to date myself, and if you're over a certain age, you'll know where I'm going with this. The question was posed to the viewer, how do you spell relief? And if you're over 35, we can maybe answer it all together. Let's spell it together. How do you spell relief? R-O-L-A-I-D-S. And I'm looking at that commercial, and I'm thinking, no, that spells Rolaids. Relief would be R-E-L-E-E-F-E is probably how I was spelling it back at the time. It's like, didn't these people go to school? That's not how you spell relief. (laughs) 
This passage is how you spell true Christianity. This is what that looks like. It's what that sounds like. Passages like Philippians chapter 1 blow away the fog of nominal half-hearted Christianity. They blow away the fog of try harder, you can pull this off in your own strength Christianity. This text is what spirit-empowered Christianity sounds like. This is the kind of life that God is creating if you belong to Jesus. Verse 21 For me to live is Christ. And who says this? To die is gain. Look at at the dilemma Paul describes in verse 23. I am torn between the two. What two? Longing to be here and make disciples and plant churches. That's tugging on one side of Paul. But then Paul says, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Not just better, far better, no-brainer, far better. You know, sometimes we'll play the game in our house, which would you pick? You know, mountains or beach, Um, ice cream or brownies this afternoon, mac and cheese or collard greens. I never ate collard greens until I moved to Birmingham, Alabama. Just blew my mind, absolutely opened up new worlds, the collard green world. This is a wonderful place, right? We might set things up, like which one would you prefer, this one or that one, this one or that one, this one or that one. For Paul, if you set up that question, you say, which one would you pick? And you say, to be with Christ. He says, I'll take that one. (laughs) That's the one. You're like, I haven't even given you the second option. He's like, it doesn't matter. That's the one. That's far better to be with Christ. Let me ask you this question. What, What is your far better? Think about that. What is your far better? How do you finish the sentence, for me to live is fill in the blank? This is that thing that satisfies me. This this scratches the itch. This This is what I'm going after day in and day out. Is it something that satisfies eternally? Core Biblical truth reminds us of this. You were made for the glory of God. You were made by God for God. To glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. That's the good life. That's as good as it gets. According to the one who wired you and who made you, that's the good life, made for the glory of God. Here's the question. Are we cultivating a self-serving life or a Christ-exalting life? What are we sowing toward day in and day out in our everyday lives? What kind of Christianity? Oh, this is such a burden for me, my own life, and I look at my kids coming behind me. What kind of Christianity am I showing to the generation that's coming behind us? Is, is it a play it safe and blend in Christianity or is it a risk it all because he's worth it Christianity? Is it an all in for Christ Christianity? What, what if God's promises became more solid than the salary bonus, 
than the house, than the car, and the picket fence, and the dream, and the early retirement? What if God's promise was more solid than all of that? What, what if we were consumed with a passion to see Jesus take over the city of Birmingham and just to start there and just to keep moving further and further out to the furthest reaches of the world and flood this earth with the knowledge of his glory. (laughs) Is anything more awesome than that? Is anything more electrifying to consider as a prospect than that? Paul says in another place in Acts 20, Last year, I spent every Wednesday praying Acts 20, 24 over my life and over my family and over our church. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Not white-knuckling my life. I just want to get out there and tell people the gospel of the grace of God. A famous missionary wrote some shocking words that sound a lot like Philippians 1 in some ways. He compares the joy of one of his favorite things, namely sharing the gospel, with the far greater prospect of seeing Jesus. Here's what he says. This is Jim Elliott. Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Mayhap in mercy, so maybe in his mercy, he shall give me a host of children. He's talking about spiritual children. That I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not... If only I may see him, touch his garments, smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. This is the one big thing. This is why Paul isn't afraid of death. You know, there's an experiential reality and then there's this theological truth and they live in tension in the Christian life. You might put it this way, it's in your notes, fear dying but never fear death. This is sort of tension, fear dying but never fear death. Look at what Paul says in verse 27. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come or see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit Putting them together in the mission, right? In one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. And you want to say, Paul, hello, you're in prison. Paul, history's already told us, you and Peter are both going to be dead within the span of the next 10 years. Paul says, don't be afraid of your opponents. Don't be frightened about anything. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Last time I preached this passage was just over a year ago on a very hard day at the funeral of a dear friend, our global pastor, Jonathan Bean. And, and as I read through the manuscript this past week from the funeral sermon that I shared over a year ago, I, I felt three things so powerfully. One, 
fresh gratefulness to God for my brother's life and legacy. To renewed thankfulness for God's grace in Carla and the kids. God has been so faithful. And three, fresh fire to see God's name spread to all nations. My brother, my friend, sign off every email. His name to all nations. He could be asking you to go to Chewy's for lunch. Hey, let's, let's go. Let's meet in the you know, lobby. Let's go to Chewy's. His name to all nations. This it's, it's constant passion. Take it out there. Get it out there. Tell them about the glory we've seen. Look, the most glorious promise in the Bible is in the last chapter of the Bible. Five words. They will see his face. <laughs> That's what's coming. That's why Paul said it'll be far better when I see that Far better. No, no good option is a close second. In that moment, when we see his face, God will convert every sadness we knew here into joy and then multiply it by 10,000-fold. Church, what if our joy ran so deep our enemy couldn't snatch it and suffering couldn't pull it up by the roots? What if... What if God set us free from craving the passing pleasures of this world and the interest of making Jesus known here and among the nations? What what if we traded in our designer Christianity for the real thing? What if we we took a chance and stepped toward a life of self-sacrificing love, knowing that Jesus tucked some of his best surprises in places that look like death? What, what if this time next year we were more convinced than ever of three great truths? Nothing is better than knowing Jesus. No privilege is greater than proclaiming Jesus. And no prospect is more thrilling than seeing Jesus.